Uh, now I'm super happy to introduce Jason uh, to all of you guys. I'm sure that he needs an introduction. Who here has seen Jason before at an event, virtual, whatever? Yeah, okay. So a few of you at least, you know the drill. This will be a little bit different than usual. So you already had an hour to socialize. We'll do a very quick talk of 15 minutes. I'll do three questions for a Q&A, then we do a group Q&A, and then we have a few breakout prompts for you guys. So uh, this will be mostly focused on you. This will not be uh, a long-winded talk, uh, but it's mostly, you know, all of you guys. Oftentimes, at, of course, at events, many of the audience could be speakers, so I usually try to, uh, I usually try to make room for that. Okay, very cool. Well, I'm really, really excited to have you here, Jason. I couldn't tell you, uh, I think, how aligned at Foresight we feel um, with you. I think when I discovered Foresight at first, I uh, looked into our archives, People were so deeply optimistic. You know, you had molecular nanotech, like you first had a big bump, uh, and, and, and then there was like this kind of like hump uh, and, and the slowdown, the same with AI, the same with like hopefully longevity is now still speeding up. But I think that over like the years, you really find out who's pushing and believing in progress, uh, you know, who can really like, I think, um, at least have this longer term time horizon uh, in, in, in view. And I think that is this community that is like really assembled in San Francisco. I think, unfortunately, it doesn't shine so much through to, uh, you know, like your everyday mainstream media these days. And I'm hoping really that you and, uh, you know, the Progress Studies community really change that. So I'm terribly excited about your work. I've watched all your talks. So happy to have you here. Uh, you're so deeply, I think, existential hope aligned. I think, you know, there are many different risks that we need to take into account. Existential risks are real, but I think this existential angst that we often have through that is uh, sometimes not super healthy. And so I think you're really pushing with a really firm belief in something, you know, concrete and positive uh, against that tide. So I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, I think, you know, I can give you a longer introduction uh, afterwards, but, you know, for, for now, I'm just really delighted that you made the way here tonight. I'm really delighted at the kind of community that you're building. I think it's one of the most hope-inspiring things of late. And I'm really excited for what you have to tell us about what a new philosophy of progress could look like. So give it away. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. And thank you for hosting me. Great to see everybody here. I'm very glad to be able to address this audience tonight. Um, the Foresight Institute, uh, I mean, I'll just echo back what you said. Like, when I discovered you all and um, realized kind of what you all were about, I thought, oh, wow, this is an organization that's actually really deeply aligned. Uh, the Foresight Institute, which has been around now for, what, over, well over 30 years, 30. Um, is, you know, it's one of the very few organizations that is actually promoting a bold, ambitious vision of what a technological future could be. And that is something that I think we have sadly kind of lost uh, these days. If you look back at the early to mid 20th century, people were, uh, people were looking forward to the future. You know, in the 30s and 40s, right, DuPont could use, uh, with, you know, unironically use the slogan, better living through chemistry, right? Better things for better living through chemistry. Um, in the 50s and 60s, people were looking forward to a future which they were certain was going to be powered by nuclear energy. Um, there was a, a, there was a newspaper ad that I saw from 1959 in the LA Times that, uh, just was, it was, it was published by a, a, a group of power companies and it was all about the amazing future that, you know, electricity and, and energy could bring to us. And this, and this ad referred without any explanation or apology or justification to quote, tomorrow's higher standard of living. That was something that people just all, you know, assumed was coming. Uh, and this ad for illustration, by the way, it had an illustration of a flying car. Um, and uh, some of you may know the book that you know recently came out, Where Is My Flying Car? by Jay Storrs Hall, who I think at one point was president of the Forsen Institute. Great book, yes. And also a, just a great example of what does it look like to actually have a bold, ambitious vision for the future. Um, today in the mainstream, it's just so hard to find this. I think, I feel like the, you know, the best kind of the most optimistic, if you took somebody not, not from this group, you know, but just sort of plucked them out of the mainstream and, and you said, like, what is the most optimistic vision of the future that you can come up with? It's basically to avoid disaster, right? It's like stop climate change and prevent pandemics. And maybe there's something in there about how we'll pull a few people out of like extreme poverty. Um, but the notion that we could have fusion and cryonics and that we could return to space and that we could have nanotech and uh, like all of that is just, it's just sort of out there kind of, 
sci-fi fantasy world, like, you know, who are you? What are you talking about? So I love that there's this organization that is that is um, dedicated to this. Um, and so one of the things that I've been researching uh, last few years is like, what happened? What happened to the idea of progress? And how did we get to this state where people don't know where to go? Um, and so one of the things I found is that the idea, the very idea of progress is a fairly modern idea in like world historical terms. So most places and times, people believed in either cyclical or declinist narratives of history. Like the idea that the past was a golden age from which we have fallen and maybe will you know, continue to fall. Um, and this started to change. Uh, There's a really good book by Joel Mokir uh, called A Culture of Growth that I enjoyed. Uh, so he says this started to change uh, around, you know, in, in, in Europe, basically, uh, in the 14, 1500s, around the age of discovery. So people were going out and, uh, and, and we discovered entire new continents that were never found in any of the ancient writings. Um, and there were other things going on, like we had gunpowder and the compass and the printing press. And none of these were known to the ancients. And so there was this view for a long time that maybe our ancient ancestors were like the greatest people who ever lived. And we, the moderns, will never surpass their knowledge or their achievements. And by the 1400s, 1500s, people were starting to find a few examples of like, wait a sec. They didn't know about the Americas. They didn't know about the printing press. Um, and you can read Francis Bacon uses these examples as evidence of, of hope. Um, and he, he uses the word hope. And he says, and he gives in his, in his uh, famous Novum Organum, he gives several like arguments for hope, grounds for hope. And one of them is that there's all these inventions that have just recently come about. And he even says, you know, yeah, maybe like the compass or silk or gunpowder Maybe those depend on some like weird material properties that you wouldn't have guessed. But the printing press, there is nothing in that that is not plain and obvious, he says. It's just a mechanical invention. And if there's stuff like that that we, haven't, that we didn't discover for the longest time, what else is out there, right? Noble inventions may be lying at our feet, he says in Novum Organum. And he, and he inspired, he and his contemporaries, inspired generations after them to go out with this vision of uh, you know, of, of a scientific and industrial revolution that took hundreds of years to happen, but, you know, but eventually came true. It's like the greatest prophecy in the world. Um, and so by the, you know, by the 1700s, you've got the, this flowering of these ideas into an enlightenment, and people are getting super optimistic about the potential and the power of reason. And there's this, this guy who just has never ceases to amaze me how optimistic he was. The Marquis de Condorcet, this key uh, uh, thinker of the French Enlightenment, and towards the end of the 1700s, he writes this book, Sketch for a Historical Picture of the Progress of the Human Mind. And he forecasts unlimited progress in like every dimension, not only scientific and technological, but uh, social and, uh, and, and, and like morality and society and government. He's talking in the 1700s about the equality of the sexes and about uh, you know, peace among nations. And the most amazing thing is that he's writing this book while he's hiding out from the French Revolution, who is hunting him down in order to execute him because there was a death warrant. It was a warrant out for his arrest because he had dared to criticize the, the Constitution of 1793. Uh, unfortunately, he could not hide out forever. He was soon captured and died in jail, awaiting the guillotine. Uh, so evidently, the moral perfection of mankind that he spoke of was slow in coming. But... Technological progress was racing ahead. And so in the 19th century, we got this series of inventions that completely transformed the world, right? The, the telegraph, the telephone, the railroad, the light bulb, the internal combustion engine. It was, uh, the, it was obvious that something like big was going on. So philosophy or, or progress was no longer like this theoretical possibility for philosophers to kind of talk about for the future. It was a reality being brought into the lives and homes of, of everyone on a daily basis. Um, and so people were, were, were getting super optimistic. Um, it seemed as if the optimism of the Enlightenment had been justified. And, uh, and so if all of this scientific and technological progress could happen, well, they thought maybe the moral and social progress could happen as well. And people started to get pretty optimistic, right? So end of the very end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, you've had a few decades of peace in Europe Slavery has been ended in the West. We've started in the last, you know, 150 years before that to see the beginning of the end of monarchy, right? Monarchies are starting to get replaced for the first time in like 
thousands of years by democratic republics and you know representative government. So there's all these things happening. And people just thought all of this goes together. And that you know maybe with the growth of industry and the expansion of trade between nations, and we've got these new uh, inventions like the telegraph that allow all these far-flung peoples to talk to each other, maybe, maybe all of this is heralding a new era of world peace, the end to war. Well, of course, they were wrong. The 20th century saw world wars that violently shattered those naive illusions. Technology had not led to an end to war. In fact, it had made war all the more terrible and destructive. It had given us the machine gun, chemical weapons, atomic weapons. Right? Nuclear bomb is the most destructive weapon the world has ever seen, and it was very clearly the product of modern science, modern technology, modern industry and industrial capacity. And so the world was shaken. Um, and even as early as the, as the 20s and 30s, after World War I, people are questioning this very idea of progress. Um, historian Carl Becker said in some lectures in the 1930s, uh, something like that, that the idea of progress is now disputed and the doctrine is discredited. And he asks, uh, what, if anything, may be said on behalf of the human race? May we still, in whatever different fashion, believe in the progress of mankind? So what had gone wrong? How had the world reached such a state just when everything seemed to be going so well? Well, there were a lot of different ideas about this, and there were different solutions that people tried. So for a while, for about a generation, we tried this idea that maybe progress uh, could not be trusted to the chaos of democracy and free markets, and it needed to be led uh, top-down by a scientific elite who would bring scientific management and top-down control to industry and the economy. Um, and so we saw this most obviously in, in Europe where it turned into totalitarianism with disastrous results. But we also saw it in America. Uh, we got this very technocratic uh, generation from um, really, uh, I mean, the idea started to take hold, I think, in the 20s, um, really started getting implemented in the 30s. Um, so think about, so progress from the 30s through the 60s was characterized by these, by these big like federal government projects, right? Think about the New Deal, um, the, the public works projects, the mobilization for World War II, the interstate highway project, the Apollo program. Apollo was the apotheosis of technocracy. Um, and then basically what happened, so this made sense to the generation who'd kind of grown up before the wars. Like FDR, Truman, Eisenhower, all of them were born in the 19th century. They all grew up in that pre-war period where everybody still believed in progress. But the generation that grew up after the wars, I think, felt differently. They grew up in this kind of atmosphere of like fear and soul-searching. And they weren't so sure that they wanted to pursue progress at all, especially now that progress had become bound up in this top-down, authoritarian, like centralized um, you know, fashion of, of management and of rule. And so they chafed against that authoritarianism. And you got this countercultural revolution uh, that said, yeah, we're against that top-down authoritarianism, and we're also against that progress stuff that goes along with it. Maybe progress is the problem. Maybe modernity is to blame not only for war and for economic uh, you know, instability, but for pollution and for health risks and for overpopulation and for the environment. And in all of these, these you know, concerns, they just tied them all together in this one bottle, bundle and they said progress is to blame. And so in the 60s and 70s, we got these sort of radical social movements based on a deep distrust of technology and of industry. Um, and it really uh, had a deep impact on the culture and quickly found its way into law and policy. Um, so there was this uh, court decision in 1971 that I think is really revealing because uh, it was right after uh, NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act, and it was enforcing NEPA against a nuclear plant that they wanted to build. Uh, when the AEC, the Atomic Energy Commission, which is the predecessor to the NRC, um, wanted, didn't want to do a whole environmental review on this uh, nuclear plant. And they basically said, no, you have to. NEPA says you have to. And there was this, in the introduction to this court decision, the court wrote that this, um, this was just the first of a flood of cases that they predicted uh, because these newly enacted laws attest to the commitment of the government to control at long last the destructive engine of material, quote unquote, progress. So once people see progress as a destructive engine, they, they swing into action to stop it. 
And I think that is part of what we have seen uh, the last 50 years. Not only that, not only that, but I think that's a significant part of why the last 50 years or so, progress shows signs of slowing down. If you look at growth rates in uh, GDP per capita in the U.S., they are on a long-term decline. Um, uh, and you can look at it qualitatively as well. Uh, you know, nuclear power was stunted. Uh, it's only about 20% of uh, electricity usage in America today, or electricity generation, and only about 10% worldwide. Um, the Concorde was grounded. Right? The Apollo program was canceled. And those flying cars that we were promised never arrived. So here we are today. Um, progress has raced ahead in some areas, you know, like computers and the internet. That's awesome. But manufacturing, construction, transportation, energy, all of these, you know, nanotech, cryonics, all of these other, longevity, all of these other areas um, have arguably lagged behind. Where does this leave us? Well, I think that 19th century philosophy of progress was naive. And I don't think we should try to go back to the past. But I also think this 20th century sort of rejection of progress and this fatalism and defeatism that kind of arose in that era and, and, has, and has affected so much of our culture, it's wrong. It was a mistake and it is not a way forward. And you can see that it has left us somewhat stuck. So I think we need a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century and beyond. We need to regroup. We need to reassess. We need to reaffirm the sort of fundamental reality and value of progress. At the same time, we need to not repeat the mistakes of the past. We need to learn from the 20th century. We need to confront and acknowledge those problems of progress, the costs and risks that are very real. And we need to figure out how to solve them or address them, approach those problems uh, on a, on a sort of pro-progress basis, on a basis, on, on a humanistic basis that says we want to improve lives for human beings, for humanity, improve human well-being, that that's kind of the goal of all of this, uh, on a basis that recognizes human agency. Um, you know, we sometimes use the term optimism, and I, I do in a certain way, I think of myself as optimistic, but I've actually tried to get away from that term a little bit. Uh, especially recently, because I think it can be a little mis misleading or, or just at least a little uh, vague. What kind of optimism are we talking about? Uh, are we talking about an optimism that says, hey, don't worry. The future is bright. We're on the right track. The way is clear. There are no problems or the problems are going to be easy to solve. You know, I don't necessarily believe any of those things. Maybe the problems are difficult. Maybe we're on the wrong track. Maybe we're stuck. Maybe the future doesn't look so bright. But what I hate and what I will never accept is this fatalism where we just resign ourselves to not making progress and we call for degrowth and regress and maybe we shouldn't go do that and maybe we shouldn't go there um, and maybe mankind was just not meant to whatever, right? Um, and so instead of optimism, I've been using the term agency. I think we have to regain a sense of our agency as individuals and as a species. Um, no matter what challenges lie in store for the future, we can step up to them. We can address them and we can move forward. And one way or another, there is a path forward. There is a bold, ambitious technological future out there. We have to define it. We have to define that vision and we have to commit to going for it. And so uh, that is what I have uh, devoted myself to and uh, my new organization. Um, so uh, I, I've been, for the last few years, I've been writing a blog called The Roots of Progress. And uh, I've uh, recently turned it into a new uh, nonprofit organization. Uh, it's been supporting just my work so far, but we are now uh, at the point where we're gonna branch out and support the work of uh, many more uh, progress intellectuals and really help to establish the intellectual foundation for this new progress movement um, that has arisen. And if you don't know, there is a movement that's wider than just me. Um, I didn't even really start it. Um, there are folks like Tyler Cowen, the economist at George Mason, Patrick Collison, the founder and CEO of Stripe. Um, uh, uh, of course, you know, a number of Silicon Valley VCs like, you know, Peter Thiel was asking a decade ago what happened to the future. Mark Andreessen has declared that it's time to build. Uh, even journalists are, are picking up the call. Derek Thompson at The Atlantic coined this term, the abundance agenda. Um, even Ezra Klein at the New York Times uh, has coined this term supply-side progressivism. Um, and even politicians are taking up the call. There was a guy who ran for uh, Congress recently in New York. He didn't win the primary, unfortunately, but he ran on, his plan was called the Abundant Society Plan. So this language is getting picked up. The concepts are getting out there. 
I'm really excited to join forces with uh, Foresight and all of you. And so let's build this progress movement. Let's establish the new philosophy of progress. Uh, you know, let's regroup and move forward for the 21st century uh, on the basis of humanism and agency. And, uh, you know, let's go out and build the future. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay. Um, uh, that head forth. So I'm going to ask three questions only. And then it's on all of you. So I'm just going to ask them to get you guys warm. So I already encourage you guys to think of your questions. If you're in the front, I'll come to you. If you're in the back, you have to come closer to speak into the microphone. Um, question number one. Uh, we don't want to be Pollyannish here, right? Like That's not the point. And you already said you don't just want to be, you know, Pollyannish optimist. I think uh, Pinker called it intelligent optimism. And like, there's a few different terms forming around it. But like, you know, what does it look like to actually take the risk seriously, right? I think that we all, people that, you know, are at least EA adjacent, that are, you know, perhaps also like X-Risk focused to some extent here. I know that there's a few, um, you know, and definitely many people who care about positive futures, not just like any future that is um, laced with technology. Um, we have to also take into account that, you know, more and more technological progress also means that technologies of destruction are being sped up uh, as well. And and I think you gave a wonderful talk to the Slate Codex um, uh, meetup or like Astra Codex meetup. We talked a little bit about this. And so I just want to, you know, prime you on this. Um, there is the term called differential technology development in EA of just like speeding safety and enhancing technologies up first uh, if you care about experts. But like, what, what is your thought around this? Like, you know, can we shape that to some extent, are there any specific technologies where you're like, okay, those first? Like, is there anything, you know, that uh, we can do to intelligently take risk into account as we move forward? Yeah. Um, I think we should take risk seriously. And um, I think the differential technology development is a good idea. I think the devil is in the details. What exactly do you do? Um, I think a lot of risk is fairly domain-specific. What risk looks like in AI and what it looks like in bio are quite different, and the techniques you would use to address them are generally, I think, fairly different. There are probably some overarching general principles, and so if somebody you know, wants to work on like the general theory of safety, then um, cool, there's probably some things we can learn there. Um, you asked, what does it look like to take a risk seriously? I think there's some good examples, actually, from the history and from the current um, state of, of bio and, and genetic engineering. Um, so uh, I'll name a few. Um, some, some people are familiar with some of these, but I think they're good, they're good ones to know about. Um, so, so famously in the 1970s when um, uh, recombinant DNA technology was invented and we had a powerful new genetic technology for the first time, uh, the researchers who did this realized that we could, uh, through these experiments, be accidentally creating some dangerous pathogens. And they actually called for a moratorium on research until they could get together at a conference and work out some safety procedures. And they got together at the Asilomar Conference Center. So this is generally just known as like the Asilomar Conference of 1975. And they hashed it out. Um, and I mean, long story short, I'll, I'll try to keep this brief, but they, um, they basically defined some like different safety levels. How do, you, how do you identify like the safety level of an experiment? And then what are the different safety procedures that you might do for different safety levels? So if it's a really, uh, it's a, if it's a really um, not risky uh, you know, bacteria that you're working with or something, maybe you don't need much, maybe you should wear gloves, right? And then if it's like super risky, then you only do it in special facilities with people who are highly trained and they wear full hazmat suits and you have a negative pressure room and maybe you biologically modify the organism so it can't survive outside of a defined environment, et cetera. I don't, I'm not an expert on what all of the things are. Um, Here's another example also from bio. So there's a good, uh, I recommend a podcast. Uh, Julia Galef, who a lot of you might know that name, is this great podcast, Rationally Speaking. She interviewed this guy, Kevin Esfelt at MIT. And, uh, I think he's in the media lab, but he runs a, uh, a bio uh, lab. Um, and Esfelt, I believe, is the one who came up with the idea of using CRISPR to do a gene drive. So uh, gene drive, the concept of gene drive had been around already. Um, but after CRISPR was invented, Asphalt realized you could use CRISPR to like much more easily create a gene drive. And he tells this great story because he says the first, as soon as I had this idea, I thought of how you could use this to end malaria and how many lives of how many children you would be saving every year. It's like millions and millions, tens of millions. I don't know how many, you know, there's an enormous number of children who die from malaria every year. It's like, you could save all of them. And then he said, the next day I woke up and I thought, and I realized, wait, 
This technology means that a single researcher or, or, or lab could unilaterally modify an entire species. And we've never had that power before. And he said, before I, so he was in, I guess he was in like George Church's lab at the time. And he was like, before I even told George about this idea, I thought through it from every angle that I possibly could. And I tried to work out for myself whether this was a technology that favored offense or favored defense. And he ultimately decided that it favored defense and listened to the podcast if you want to know why or ask me a question later. Uh, but he ultimately decided that it didn't. He has logical reasons for why. And he, and he ultimately did you know, tell people about it. And so, um, I don't know, I think these are good examples of doing it. And I think what it shows is um, so much of safety actually is in the hands of the technologists who are on the front lines. They are the ones who are standing in front of Pandora's box. They are the ones who are holding the key. Uh, they are the ones who will spot the risks before anybody else does and understand them. They are also the ones who might do the experiment or not do it, right? Uh, that might unleash the risk. And they're the ones who can come up with the solution. So I think uh, if you're one of those ex experts, um, and if you are on the front lines, I think you should take this responsibility seriously. And you should study these stories of the people who've come before you and what they've done right and wrong and um, try to have your name go down in history books in a good way and not in a bad way. Um, and if you're not one of those people, uh, or if you're somebody like me who works more at the history and philosophy level, I think the best thing we can do is tell these stories and help just educate people and kind of spread the word of what does it look like to be a responsible technologist? Because I think there is a lot of responsibility in your hands. Cool. Yeah, what I loved about the cinema conferences is also that it was like a pretty voluntary arrangement. Like scientists came together themselves. They were like, okay, let's get together and like, let's do this pretty proactively. I think, you know, oftentimes, you know, regulation, like even if it's really, really well-intentioned, well also has its like secondary, ter tertiary uh, consequences themselves. And I think the cool thing about technology often is that it can often do what we otherwise would do with regulation. At least like cryptography, for example, is I think, or computer security is like probably like a pretty good differential technology that we could push for in the sense that it is rather safety enhancing. Uh, and I think that there's a few more where if only I think we knew of the things we could already do with technologies that we sometimes I think to try to do other ways, uh, we would have a better toolbox available. So even just looking a little bit more, if you are working on the safety angle in the technology toolbox, I think is an interesting one. Yeah, so I think uh, much more communication needs to happen, I think, uh, between uh, risk uh, policy and, uh, and, and really um, uh, pro-technology folks. Okay, uh, second question. Now that we've covered the risks um, uh, very uh, exhaustively, second question is, uh, paint us the picture of like, okay, if, if things go well um, in a, a world in which, you know, progress studies take off, in a world in which we get more to the world that you'd like us to get to, uh, where are we in like around 15 years? You know, like relatively realistically, at least like something for us to hang on to as we go home and try to, and try to get there. Like what's possible? 15 years? Yeah. Oh, pick, pick your poison. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, yeah, I'm, so I'm just thinking about that from different levels, right? So, so on one level, when I think about the work that I'm doing, within 15 years, I would really like to see um, some of this, this different like, view of, um, of progress. And this, you know, when I talk about a philosophy of progress, a lot of it really is our view of ourselves as human beings, our relationship to nature, and um, the role of technology in all of that and in our lives. And um, so within 15 years, I would love to see some of this kind of more deeply humanistic and agentic kind of worldview really starting to break into the mainstream. Um, if folks have been following the effective altruism movement, you've probably know it's been going for uh, 15 years-ish, maybe, you know, between 10 and 15, I think. And it is just, you know, kind of just now breaking the mainstream. Somebody had a copy over there of What We Owe the Future, right, which is... Um, which is, has now gotten Will McCaskill on the cover of Time and New Yorker and I don't know, all this, all this stuff, right? So I would love to see kind of the, the general progress movement do that as well. In terms of technology, um, man, I don't, I don't know. Um, because on the one hand, 15 years, you know, I mean, some of the stuff we, we would love to see, like fusion or, um, uh, uh, or, I don't know, some sort of nanotech, like can that even happen in 15 years? I don't know. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, uh, uh, I mean, the people who work in AI, I mean, some of them are basically saying like, oh no, the AGI is going to be here in 15 years. So um, I have no idea. I don't think anybody can really know. Um, you should not place any like large amount of stock in predicting the future on any kind of like precise uh, timetable because that never works. Um, read, if you think that might work, like go read David Deutsch um, and, and, and him, Deutsch channels Karl Popper and uses the term prophecy to talk about sort of basically any time we were trying to make 
trying to make a statement about the future where you're um, there are just too many unknown unknowns out there in between you and that thing to like for you to actually make a statement about it. There are limits to our knowledge. We just cannot project too far out. Um, and so it's much better to um, have a view of like what might come down the pipe so that you can recognize it as soon as as soon as it comes. React extremely quickly um, and just have like. Uh, a very a very tight OODA loop, right? A very fast feedback loop to react to things. Yeah. Got to stay in the loop. Who here read Beginning of Infinity? Weekend? Okay. It's wonderful. It basically says the only limitation we have is really knowledge uh, because even, you know, we can we can learn how to make better use of resources uh, through knowledge and, like, turn it into, like, all kinds of, like, um, progress-oriented um, helpers. Okay. Last question, and I'm hoping that you already get ready. I see one hand already up here, right? So you're first. Uh, but get ready, guys. Um, uh, last question. It, it's a bit more action-oriented. And so that's... Um, well, now, if we want to get there, like what, what can people here in this room basically do? Like, What would you recommend? What's a call to action? Uh, it's really funny. Actually, at Burning Man last week, I met someone who at Foresight's Vision Weekend met you and I think did the uh, took the less wrong um, like basically skin of the blog and made it the progress... Um, Doc is, is here. Oh my God, you. Yes, I met you. <laughs> it was you. Yeah, it's wonderful. So I, I think you really inspire people, you know, at events, like take action. And I was just congratulating you on like being such like an agent for boss. Uh, so thanks for coming out again tonight. It's really nice to see you again. Uh, but, 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 you know, in this more, you know, immediately oriented uh, way of like, what can people in this room really like literally do uh, if they want to be part of like a movement for towards better futures? Yeah, sure. So first off, yeah, Lawrence, uh, Andrew, and Samir were the volunteer devs behind the new Progress Forum, uh, which you're all invited to check out, uh, progressforum.org. It is literally a clone of Less Wrong and the EA Forum. It's the same. We forked the codebase, and we reskinned it for uh, for the progress movement, and so now we have our own forum. And we've been deliberately kind of, uh, like, haven't made any big announcement about it yet because we've just been, like, building the community there and the content. But um, all of you qualify, so please check it out and um, uh, submit your writing and, and upload stuff and comment. Um, and thank you to the volunteers who helped make that happen. Thanks. Um, yeah, so my first answer to what can each individual sort of do about progress depends on who you are. So if you are a scientist, uh, an inventor, a founder, you are already helping progress. You're already pushing it forward uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So thank you. Keep doing it. Uh, be ambitious, and um, and also, I mean, at, at, to the point we just discussed, like, also remember your responsibility to uh, you know to drive this forward, not in a in a reckless way, um, but to but to think about all of the ramifications um, and do it carefully. Um, if you are a historian or an economist or a philosopher or work in any of those fields, uh, think more about progress and how it relates to your work. I think. The concept of progress should loom larger in all of those fields and has been kind of neglected and understudied. And that's why Tyler Cowen and Patrick Collison a few years ago in The Atlantic called for a new discipline of progress studies, just to, to, to reinforce that. Um, if you are a writer or a journalist or an educator or somebody else whose job is to communicate uh, broadly to the public, think about how you can communicate about the, the history and the philosophy of progress. I think these are really important topics that, again, are, are understated, especially in education. Um, uh, you know, who learned about the history of technological progress in school? It's not, so you did. Okay, we've got one, two, uh, and a half, a couple more halves. It's, it's, it sort of falls between the cracks of history class and science class, right? History is mostly about wars and monarchies and stuff like that. And then science is about the science, but where do we learn about the inventions? Um, And so I think everybody should graduate from school with some basic level of industrial literacy, right? Some basic understanding of the world we live in, how it was created, what came before, and, uh, and what is required to, I mean, we all enjoy this like amazing standard of living, this totally historically unprecedented standard of living. Um, and, and we wake up on soft mattresses and we take a shower under hot running water and we go to the fridge and we get milk and eggs and orange juice and then we hop on a train to work and we go up the elevator to the 40th floor and we sit behind a keyboard in an air-conditioned room and look out a plate glass window at the skyscrapers. And none of that existed 200 years ago. And, uh, you know, and, and it's so easy to take all of that for granted. So I think a good education would you know, include some of that. Um, uh, I was commissioned by a private high school to create a, a high school-level progress course. And I think something like that should be taught in every high school in the world. 
you know, if you happen to work in policy, uh, in, in government or, or NGOs, you know, think about how that relates to progress. Um, what reforms might we need uh, for to, to unblock progress? Uh, what are emerging technologies and what kind of like legal frameworks do they need? Those are those are really important questions. Um, uh, and ultimately, like no matter who you are, learn about the story of progress. Um, learn about the history. Uh, read and think about the philosophy. Join this community. Um, and uh, also, like we're taking donations, right? As are you. So you know, if you're if you've got a little extra cash burning a hole in your pocket, um, both Foresight and the Roots of Progress, I think, are five hundred one c three organizations that depend on donations. So that's what you can do. Okay, I had to get that. Obviously, thanks for doing that. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, we have the first question. Um, and, oh, second, third, fourth. Okay, here, oh, here we go, guys. <laughs> the floor is open. If you come to the front, I can come, like, you know, let's go to this vicinity and I will try to hit you anywhere where you are. Say your name and just maybe one word on your background and then your question. Sure. Uh, Brian, fan of history. Look at, look at. Um, very aligned on the goals. Um, and just kind of curious to sort of challenge some of the views here, just more for the purpose of sharing them. Please, please. Um, I think that it's ironic to me that, like, we are currently experiencing a mental health crisis around the country, and a lot of the first world, I think, is going through this. Um, I think there's a lot of indications that modernity seems to be very at odds with fertility. Like, we're kind of experiencing a global decline in fertility across the sort of uh, developed world. Um, and we have cultures like the Amish and the Mormons where that's not true. And these are sort of cultures that sort of actively issue progress, act actively push what, how we're defining progress away. And I'm curious sort of how do you square that circle? Like the fact that the cultures that seem to be thriving by many sort of like more uh, traditional definitions of thriving um, seem to be really like staying out of the progress race. Uh, and there's some indications that this progress race may not be making us that much happier. There's about five interesting questions in there. I think I can talk for about an hour answering all of them. So let me try to come up with a really condensed. Um, when you step back and you just compare quality of life, um, I think it's just a no-brainer that progress has made us better off on the whole. Now, progress is messy. Uh, it is not a simple, linear, uh, uh, monotonic, Pareto-optimal like march towards only better things ever. Um, this is another very David Deutschian point. So progress always brings new problems. Every time we solve a problem, it creates new problems. We are never going to be done solving problems. In fact, there's like an expanding frontier of problems. Um, and so we actually just get more and more of them. Hopefully, they're better problems to have, and hopefully they can be solved. Right, and usually that's the case. Right, we trade really bad problems for better ones. We traded famine for obesity. Right, um, that like that was a good trade overall. But now we have a new problem. Obesity is a real problem. Like we got to solve that one too. Um, maybe we traded like too many children for not enough children. Um, and I mean, I'm not I'm not so sure about that. Um, um, but I do think, uh, and there's a, there's a lot to say about potentially like kind of the happiness research and so forth. Um, I don't think the surveys, there are surveys of happiness and life satisfaction that show that like people don't get happier over kind of long periods. Um, I think these surveys are, like one of the challenges of these surveys is that they're relative, not absolute. They literally ask you like on a scale of one to 10, one is the like the worst possible life, 10 is the best possible life that you can imagine. Uh, how are you doing right now, right? And I think that actually tells us more about the type of life that people can imagine more than the type of life that they have. And there's various evidence that, that kind of points in that direction. Um, so I think so I think progress does make us better off, and it's just very clear if you look at what life was like when we, um, you know, were just like when we were, you know, living in one room huts with open hearth fireplaces and getting smallpox and like hauling our water from the well and working long days of manual hours in the fields, and um, and when and when women didn't have a choice of how many children they had or when they had them or anything like that, right? We are better off, and I think that's that's pretty much a no brainer if you just look at the history. Um, as for the communities that you mentioned, it's not obvious to me that they're better off. Um, they might be in some ways. I don't know. I would not take fertility as an indication that they're better off. Um, I may take. I might just take that as an indication that they're more traditional and maybe maybe people actually have less choice or are exercising less choice. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to say that too strongly without studying those communities a little, in a little more depth. 
Um, but I would also point out hmm? that... Yes, that's true. So even the Mormons, by the way, their fertility rates are going down. They're just starting from a higher baseline. But even if you, but even if you accept that, like, um, they're kind of free riding in a sense on the rest of progress, right? Because they get to pick and choose. They're not, they're not driving progress forward, but they are picking and choosing and taking like the parts of progress that they like. And, um, you know, they're totally free to do that and it doesn't hurt anybody and I don't mind. But if everybody did that, we'd still be living in one-room homes with open hearth fireplaces and getting smallpox and hauling our water from the well. So you just can't take that as any kind of a, like, plan for society. Um, cool. But being intentional about how you let technology into your life, there can be something good about that, right? You know, take a digital Sabbath or whatever sometimes, right? Like, turn off the notifications on your phone. There's a bunch of things that you can, you know, whatever. Okay. Small steps. Okay, we take one here, and then I'm going to bounce around between the sides to activate all angles here. Say your name, one word on your background, and your question. Hey, thanks. Uh, my name is Taryn, uh, background in autonomous vehicles and uh, robotics and all that good stuff. So I think just to, uh, to pose a question to you, Jason, I think the, the one question in my mind at least is that, so we talked about why we made progress, but to me I think that there's a bunch of unsexy things that are leading up to this. And I say this, for example, from experience. So uh, I used to work for Apple on the autonomous car projects, and you know we had like more money than God, right? And all the talent in the world. And we still fucked up, right? And the reason for that, I believe, is because no one really talks about how the internal incentivization of discovery should actually be engineered in organizations. People think that if you have the talent, the money, that's all you need, put them in the room, and then something something great comes up. But I think that this oversight actually is a big reason for why we have to make progress. Mm. And you see that, for example, like there, there are very interesting questions like, why hasn't Apple cracked this problem? Why hasn't Google X come up with anything? They have a lot of money, they have a lot of talent. Um, whereas something like Apollo did do something legitimate, right? So my question to you is that you know, something like the company, the entity called the company, had to be invented once upon a time, 600 years ago. The VC firm had to be invented 60, 70 years ago. What is the nature of the entity that must be invented that incentivizes good research where you can actually make progress? <laughs> um, I don't know, but there's a whole community of people who are actively working on this, and I'm excited to see what they're doing because I think this is a really crucial question. So this question of how do we fund, organize, and manage research and development is actually a favorite topic within the progress community. And um, one of my like top three hypotheses for why we've seen stagnation in the last 50 years, in my sort of opening talk, you know, I talked about the belief in progress, um, and, I, and I touched a little bit on sort of the, the, um, the very restrictive regulatory framework that we've gotten around in some areas. But the third major one is uh, that uh, after the World Wars, we really centralized and bureaucratized research funding, especially in basic research. Um, and, and overall, if you just look at, um, like over the course of the 20th century, we've had like multiple major changes in the way that um, both scientific and technological research and development get funded and, and organized and managed. Um, we've, saw, we've seen both the rise and the fall of the, like, the great corporate research labs, um, like Bell Labs and DuPont and GE and Kodak and, and all of those. Um, we've seen massive changes in just like the ways that university programs are run. There was a really interesting uh, blog series recently called A Progress Studies History of MIT, uh, talking about this, like the changes that have happened in, in that institution over the course of the century and how they've changed their programs. Um, and we've had a lot of uh, funding for basic research get consolidated into just like a small number of large federal agencies. So NIH now is like the number one life sciences funder and we got NSF and all of that was very much ramped up after World War II. So we've had all of these kind of different, you know, different changes. And um, there's an argument to be made that especially at the basic research level, what's going on is we have... Um, we have a lot of this uh, centralization um, of, of science funding, which, and anytime you have like one centralized agency that's dominating science funding, no matter how well run they are, they're going to have blind spots. And um, you know, if you're if you're uh, if you're in Silicon Valley and you're doing a VC-backed startup, 
there's no one VC who has to okay your project. There's like a dozen top ones you can go to. And if any one of them says okay, then you're good. And so you can have 11 blind spots and still get funded. And that's just not really the case in science. Um, uh, and um, on top of that, a lot of the grants that we give are... Um, uh, are sort of like the decision making is done through this committee based peer review process, which uh, is like almost designed to kind of lock in status quo and engender groupthink and so forth. So uh, there are a lot of exciting new efforts right now to um, to to do this in new ways. Um, Jose, raise your hand. So Jose is involved in one of them um, called the Rejuvenome, which is an example of a concept called focused resource organ research organizations or FROs. Uh, which are being run by uh, overall sort of pushed by this um, uh, organization called Convergent Research. Uh, there is an effort by Ben Reinhardt to create a private ARPA um, called PARPA, uh, which which is, is really cool and I'm really excited about. Um, and uh, there's a bunch of other things. Uh, Simei Chu at uh, Arcadia um, Science. There's this new ARC Institute um, uh, from um, Silvana uh, Konerman and, um, uh, and a few other folks. So there's like a lot of uh, things going on. This problem is getting recognized, and people are doing a bunch of different experiments. And I think all these experiments are exactly what we need. Cool. Wonderful. Uh, OK, we have someone from this side. Come on over. Someone here, get ready. Hi, I'm Timurus. I'm a machine learning engineer and signal processing. But what I wanted to ask is, how is public studies seen in other countries, especially the developing or the recently developed world? It does seem like, at least here in the West, there's a problem of malaise or old age, where we have added good in quite a while, and a lot of efforts are just at maintaining our current level. I'm wondering what do people who have seen their lifetime uh, get much better Get, see the market better during their lifetime, or can see their neighbors uh, doing that? What do they think? Yeah, so most of them don't know about progress studies yet, um, but I, <laughs> I have seen some indications that they're more optimistic in general about the future. And it makes a lot of sense, right? If you are in China and the last few decades that you've lived through have been like high economic growth and your life is better now and you can see you're living better than your parents and you think your children will live better than you and so forth, right? You just you're more optimistic about the future. And um, I think there is a reinforcing cycle here where when things are going well, people get optimistic and then they put energy and investment into making things go better, you know, into doing ambitious projects. And the more that things seem to stagnate, the more people just take that for granted as like, well, that's the nature of things. And the less they are motivated to, you know, put time and energy and money into ambitious projects. And, you know, that's part of the danger. And, you know, those things can be changed. Um, it's not it's not locked in forever, but there is like a strong reinforcing cycle that makes it hard. To, there's a lot of inertia, whether it's inertia in staying where you are or inertia in moving forward, um, and that's what you know. It's, that's that's part of the challenge. So, do you think that countries that have moved forward, like China, will continue moving forward, and could they be the new center of technological promise? Maybe. Um, it's hard to say. Like the challenge with uh, the challenge with the economies that have been growing fast in the last few decades is that it's been catch-up growth, and that does not obviously translate into frontier growth when you catch up to the frontier. Right? The things that allowed you to catch up might not allow you to push the frontier forward. Um, now, I wouldn't say that China can't do it. Um, they've certainly, you know, I mean, they've they've built a lot of stuff. But um, I tend to think, and uh, this is, you know, at this point, this is something of a, of a maybe a personal philosophical bias. But I tend to think that pushing that frontier forward requires um, some level of kind of individualism and um, rejection of authority and kind of maverick, like, buck the system thinking. And I don't see that culture in China, right? Um, and so uh, time will tell, but... That would be, you know, if, if, if China gets to the frontier and then stops, and, uh, you know, that would be my explanation. That would be my first guess as to why. I think that ties in nicely also with Balaji's uh, being like India as the dark horse uh, theory, but not necessarily India, but Indians uh, in particular. And I think just like the individuation between like individuals within a country and the, the nation in itself is also an interesting one. Yeah. Okay, we have one here, and then I saw one over there as well. Okay, uh, okay. Yes, come on over. 
Uh, it was actually related to your name. Yeah, should we? Hey, yeah. Um, I work on engineering, machine learning, biometrics stuff. Um, yeah. So my question is: Do you think the staggering rates of progress that we're observing in the U.S. and Western democracies that they serve as a bellwether for the rest of the world, or are there different political and societal structures that might be able to bypass this phenomenon? And you sort of covered it in that question, but like, are there alternatives? To yeah. Well, one thing that's concerning, um, so this point was made by Robin Hanson. I uh, made it in a, in a podcast interview that I heard recently. He pointed out that like the world is converging on a, like a fairly homogenous um, like regulatory structure and approach, approach to problems and so forth, right? And if you look at, um, you know, like if you look at nuclear regulation. Um, technically, every country does its own like nuclear regulation, and yet there's kind of this strong international ratcheting effect um, where everybody feels like there's a certain standard that they have to meet, and they all end up converging on very similar approaches. Um, and there was, I think, there was kind of a similar thing with COVID, where uh, just like the 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 variety of strategies that you um, you know or the the there was not as much variety of strategies of how to deal with COVID in the world as there would be if we, if all the health departments in the world hadn't been like looking at each other and going to the same conferences and, ju- and judging themselves against each other and so forth, right? And that's a little disturbing because uh, it means if, if the world is converging, you could easily converge on the wrong answer, right? At least if we're all trying different things, then uh, maybe somebody will try the right thing and it will turn out to be the right thing and everybody will see that and then converge on that. Um, but if we're just not getting enough experiments... And the policies are getting set through groupthink and through not wanting to look bad at the international conference that you all go to, et cetera, right? Um, you know, I mean, we didn't have that problem in the 1600s when there was the scientific revolution. In fact, we had a little bit of the opposite. Um, one of the interesting things, I, I mentioned this book from Joel McKeer, Culture of Growth. One of the interesting things from that was that, like, Post-Reformation, or like during the Reformation and religious wars, you had a lot, a lot of competition among the European states and a lot of fragmentation and political fragmentation. And this was great for progress because if you were a heretic in a Protestant com- country, you could go flee to like a Catholic country and they would take you in and vice versa, right? So, um, uh, so there was like this, this opportunity to just kind of like move around and it was very hard for the the like uh, like the Catholics and the Protestants to all agree on who are the heretics and what should we do about them because they were all fighting each other. And so like while those guys were distracted, like the enlightenment could start happening and get off the ground. Um, but it's concerning if we have this um, you know convergence. Um, I don't have a great solution to this, right? I think the, the sub-question was basically because a lot of, like, Western democracies is basically based around consensus. Like, a lot of, like, scientific progress actually happened under, like, either monarchies or, like, other systems where, like, it was, like, benefactors that, like, you know, could support the efforts of, of individuals that were making progress. So, like, do you think that systems like that might need to, like, Come back in some form or the other to like Yeah, I mean, I definitely think um, w- like where we can, uh, it's great to start creating new independent things that are sort of not part of the current system. So, like I was just saying about the different um, science funding experiments that are going on right now, most of those are funded by private philanthropy. Um, they're not, you know, it's not like the NIH is spinning up a new thing. It's um, you're just getting making it happen a lot more quickly and a lot more independently by just getting some billionaire to fund it um, or a coalition of billionaires or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think to the extent that that can be done, it's really important. There are some areas where, you know, it's not like you can't really do that with, like, COVID policy, right? Um, you can't just spin up your own independent COVID policy on the side. Like, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. But, yeah. Thank you. Uh, okay, we have one final question, and then I have a prompt for you guys for the breakout. Um, hi, I'm Cindy. Um, I was trained as economist. So my question is, basically the big question is, like, what is the kind of progress that we want? And specifically, um, I guess, I really like what you said about taking a humanistic approach of using progress to enhance human welfare, because a lot of times it's easy to focus just on, like, technology, but not all technology are equal. Some exacerbate X-rays, like Alice mentioned, and some, you know, while 
for example, fossil fuel, while driving growth, also leads to like issue of climate change. Um, some are just not like you mentioned. Someone was complaining, "Why don't we have flying cars?" We have. I think this was somebody in VC was complaining a few years ago. Like now we have all of these apps, but we don't have flying cars. So some, you know, some of the apps are good, but they are not. I guess yeah. Even if they don't really do harm, some of them just like somehow they generate returns for investors, but they're not as good as enhancing human welfare than other kinds of technology. So and I probably everyone here agrees that GDP growth also isn't you know that good metric of human welfare. So. Um, if we want to take a humanistic approach of the, with the goal of enhancing human welfare and looking at progress, I, do we have a good idea of what kind of progress in terms of technology or other things are the ones that we want to pursue? Because um, I see progress studies as like maybe two components. One is to figure out what is it that we want to pursue, and two is like how do we, you know, pursue that at the government level, philanthropy, and um, private sector level. So I wonder. Yeah, like how much do we know about the first part of what is it we want to pursue, and if not, how do we go about understanding that? And by the way, I really like you emphasizing the humanist approach because I think, um, yeah, like you said, a lot of people don't like progress, they don't, they don't like modernity, and that's probably because a lot of those things came with a lot of negative consequences, but if going forward, we are, at least a progress study movement is more conscious of that and emphasizing that, then a lot of the backlash would. Thank you. Sorry, I missed something. You said you were trained as a economist. An economist. Okay, great, great. Like the first question, that one had about you know several like deep, like really uh, important issues that I could talk for a long time about. So how do I give it? Let me just give a concise answer to this. Um, my view is that. Um, human well-being is the ultimate goal and standard of, of what we do. And when we say things are good or bad, when we say, is this true progress? Is this real progress? Is this human progress? That's what we're talking about. Um, and human well-being consists of um, you know, living longer and healthier and happier lives. Um, it consists of having more choice and opportunity, um, more ability to actualize ourselves and uh, become you know, everything that we can and want to be. Um, um, and, you know, ultimately a sort of, uh, you know, it means, it means human thriving and flourishing. And, uh, you know, that is not captured in any one metric. Um, GDP per capita is pretty good, but it is nowhere near an actual, I mean, GDP doesn't even really measure economic production, let alone measuring human well-being, right? Um, it's pretty well, it seems to be pretty well correlated with a lot of the things that, other things that we might care about, like, you know, lifespan and health span and um, education levels and, um, uh, you know, access to energy and all kinds of things like that. But um, we should never mistake any of these metrics for, like, the one thing that we're trying to optimize. They're all just different ways of, of, of you know, of, of getting at um, that sort of core um, idea of, of human well-being. Um, and one thing that I... Um, that I think that we should remember, or that I will um, assert, uh, going back to one of the themes of sort of what I said in the beginning was, um, in the mid-20th century, um, some societies tried to achieve progress through very technocratic and in some cases authoritarian or even totalitarian rule. And um, I think where that fundamentally goes wrong is that well-being, human well-being is not something that you can, um, it is not purely materialistic. And I actually think it is not something that anyone can fully achieve for another human being. I think what it means to have well-being is something that each individual can only fully achieve for themselves. And you can help someone else doing it by giving them capabilities. You can provide them with money, with technology, with infrastructure. Um, you can give them uh, you know, anything from electricity in their home to contraception in their bedroom. Uh, there's all sorts of things you can give them that might help. But ultimately, each individual has to take that and um, decide what to do with all of that and decide how to make a life and decide how to create well-being for themselves. It's ultimately about achieving what you choose for yourself. And if you don't choose it, um, oh, then what are you? You know, you're just a houseplant that somebody's taking care of. So... Um, I think that also should be one of the lessons of the 20th century. Uh, 
And as we go forward uh, with building you know, technology, let's also remember that it's ultimately in the service of um, individual you know, choice and freedom and creating that life for yourself. Wonderful. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Foresight Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.